Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with pilot Tracy Curtis-Taylor and she's currently in South Africa to begin an approximately 7,000-mile journey in 35 legs over six weeks to recreate the historic flight undertaken by Mary Heath in 1928. Lungile Sogini is the owner and CEO of Guesthouse and B&B Marketing in Butterworth in the Eastern Cape, and he is passionate about promoting his part of the country. So he emailed me in the hope that he could interest you, the listeners, to join him in his quest to attract tourists to the local communities there in Butterworth. Julia Favria, founder and managing director of Travel Manor, will be on the line, and she'll be giving us a look into the world of corporate travel. Freelance travel writer Kerry Harvey will be joining us again this evening and this time she'll be telling us about her recent trip to Ireland and stay tuned for her visit to a leprechaun whisperer. I'd never heard of one of those before. And just a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, in 1928, Mary Heath, the first woman to hold a commercial flying license in Britain, made front-page news around the world as the first pilot, male or female, to fly solo a small open-cockpit biplane from Cape Town to London. Well, next month, to commemorate this historic flight, Tracy Curtis-Taylor will be embark on a journey to fly her own open-cockpit Boeing Stearman biplane from Cape Town to Goodwood. And that's the Goodwood in London, not the Goodwood in Cape Town. Tracy, welcome to Cape Town. And... Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So this is all rather exciting. You leave on the 1st of November for this epic journey. Yes, it suddenly got very real. I <laughs> arrived in the Cape 10 days ago. And more importantly, the aeroplane arrived um, last Wednesday. So it arrived on the due shipping date. And the winds were kind to us on that day. So the, the, the ship actually did get into port. We had a few issues getting it through customs, but thanks to, again, great efforts from the shipping agents, D.B. Schenker, and the customs people. So they've made a real exception and given it high priority. So that was delivered yesterday morning to the Execujet facilities at Cape Town International. So we've got the wings back on it, and we hope to test fly it tomorrow. The story of Mary Heath is actually quite remarkable. I mean, she was doing things long before her time. She's exceptional, and this is, you know, it's what really attracted me to the story. I mean, you know, I came to her through, obviously, the aviation side, but as you've mentioned, she was one of the first Olympic, female Olympic athletes. You know, she was academically brilliant. She was, you know, an athlete. She was a real all-rounder and came from a very fractured family background. So she was an orphan, effectively an orphan, raised by her aunts, came from provincial Ireland, and had that quality of the Irish to sort of reinvent herself. So she was a really dynamic, modern figure. And then she discovered flying in her sort of late 20s and just took to it like a duck to water and was a natural. So she really made a name for herself in sort of the early air racing and developed this sort of swooping technique around the pylons, much like you see in the Red Bull racing mm. today. And then off the back of that did this astonishing flight in 1928, which really made her name. And that was actually the, the highlight of her career because rotten luck, six months later, she had a terrible crash in America and suffered, you know, terrible facial disfigurement and brain damage. And in fact, ultimately, I think she died of her injuries. But by that point had declined into, you know, uh, alcoholism. And, and she's been literally obliterated from history. Nobody knows Mary Heath. When you talk about Lady Heath, she's not a well-known 
figure, you know, the Amelia Earhart's and the Amy Johnson's, which was sort of later than Mary Heath. So part of my motivation is really to give her, her you know, her rightful place in history and, and also really to celebrate pioneering aviators because their achievements are just astonishing, really. But you yourself have had quite an illustrious career as far as flying is, is concerned in aviation. I mean, you've done quite a lot of exceptionally interesting, in my view, things. Well, thank you. I, I never think of it as illustrious, but I have been flying old aeroplanes for a long time. Mm. So I did all of my early flying in New Zealand. So I got the chance there to, to fly some exotic old stuff. And once you start, once you master those basic stick and rudder skills, you know, they're harder to fly than modern trainers. But once you've mastered the skills, they're, they're incredibly satisfying and they're very idiosyncratic and and, you know, the open cockpit experience, once you've had that, you know, it's real flying, isn't it? So that's the only sort of aeroplane I want to fly. And that's predominantly what I've done, you know, most of my flying career. You sort of pioneered women aviators in your own time. I mean, you flew with an organisation called Warbirds, was it, in, in New Zealand? Well, I, it, is that something that women normally do? No, well, no, they don't. <laughs> you know, in this environment, there's, there's always one or two mm. women, but predominantly this is this is a male, very male-dominated, and, and it's dominated by military as well. And, of course, in my, in my day, I couldn't join the RAF. They weren't taking women on, so I didn't have the benefit of that. But the irony is that I've been trained predominantly by military pilots. So in New Zealand with the Warbirds and then much later at the Shuttleworth Collection where I'm based, I've been based there for the last seven years with another aeroplane that I have. So the route, let's talk the route. Now when Mary did it back in 1928, I mean it took her what, three months to do this? Yes it did. And you planning on doing basically the same route in? Well, we're giving ourselves seven weeks to get mm. back to the UK. It's a very intensive programme because, of course, we are also making a documentary film of it. So Nylon Films are making this feature documentary. So we've got a, a four-man film crew following us in a support aircraft. You don't have um, cameras on the plane as I, well, on I the wings have, and everything else. Absolutely. Mm. I've, got, I've got six cameras on the aeroplane. So you've got every possible angle. I've got something in the cockpit straight at me. I've got it on the tail. I've got three up the wing underneath it. So... Potentially, this could be the most comprehensive footage ever filmed from an old aeroplane flying up a continent. Because, of course, Mary Heath didn't have this. Mm. She didn't even have a radio. So, um, but as, so as well as actually flying it, which is physically hugely demanding, we then have a big filming program around it as well. Because we'll be filming, you know, interviews, meeting people, you know, associate the, some of the oldest flying clubs in the world are up Africa but also interviewing some really remarkable women up Africa because there is a sort of pioneering female theme to this flight. So your route, um, you're going, where are you going? Well, Mary's route was South Africa, Cape Town, PE, East London, Durban, Pretoria, to Zimbabwe, Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, Sudan, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Italy, France, and back to Britain. Pretty much where you're going? That's what we're going to try to do. I'm exhausted just reading all of that. <laughs> so well, you know, in seven weeks, wow. Yeah, no, it's huge. It, it's huge. And we may have some diversions because of border issues. Um, there are sensitive areas in North Africa, obviously, you know, through the, both Sudans. And Egypt, of course, has been very unsettled in recent times, and Libya. You know, some of these are technically war zones. So we've had issues with insurance. Um, so we'll just have to play that one by ear. But I, I'm at any point we, we may have to divert so it is an ambitious plan but that's what we're going to try and do 
Wow. Okay. So this is the route, and you're saying what seven weeks to do this in? Yes. It's not that long. But the reason why you, well, I would imagine she stopped all the time, and your plane as well. You don't have a very long range, fuel-wise, on a plane like this. <coughs> no, I don't. And one of the modifications I've made to my Boeing Stearman is I've had extra fuel tanks put in the wing. They're all on the top wing, but we've basically doubled the fuel capacity, which gives me a range of, I can probably stay up in the air about five hours. I wouldn't want to stay in the air that long because, you know, to be in an open cockpit, it's noisy, it's, you're very exposed, you get dehydrated, you know, it can be, you can, turbulence, you know, there's lots of physical issues with flying that. So I, I don't really want to be in there any longer than three, three and a half hours, but, you know, you just have to fly it. But so I'll be landing, you know, I'm landing almost every two to 300 nautical miles to refuel. And speed-wise? Look, it's about 95 miles an hour. This is this is not fast. Okay. But I don't want to be doing it well, fast. The whole point is recreating what she did. Well, it's a sightseeing tour, but well, actually, <laughs> she was up at altitude. Now, funnily enough, she had a different engine. I mean, we have different aeroplanes, you know, very few of her aeroplanes, the Avro Avian, and her, the original plane is, is, is in a museum in America. So my plane is, is different, but she was up flying at altitudes generally between seven and 10,000 feet. So she was high. And she just took the view that she was in cooler temperatures, thinner air, but cooler temperatures. Now, I want to be as low as I can get. So I do have a more powerful engine, but I want to be down, you know, I want to be low on this. It's so beautiful to fly low. And that's the mm. whole point, frankly, of flying in Africa. Now, you mentioned some of the things, the open cockpit. What is this going to do to you physically? Because this is, it must be a very demanding journey in an open cockpit biplane. Well, I've been told that my, I'll have a face like a boot by the time I'm finished, <laughs> but... Really looking for. I need. I needed sort of one of the the, the um, cosmetic houses mm. on board with sunblocks and everything else. So I'm carrying a fair amount of product with me, which the ladies will relate to. So, yeah, I, you know, you, I will get burnt. And of course, Mary Heath actually passed out in her aeroplane from sunstroke. So she had a sort of semi-crash landing in Bulawayo. So that was, you know, we're okay. going to be visiting the crash site and, and just sort of doing a bit of film work around around that. So I hope to avoid that, of course. What, one yes. No. Yeah, but I'll, mm. I'll have, you know, I'll have water on on board, and I'll, you know, I'll have a few, a few muesli bars in the cockpit or something. But, but physically, it must be quite taxing, though. Yeah, it is on your body, on, you know, yeah. doing this kind of flight. It can't be sort of you're not sitting talking about five star luxury in a plane no, like it's that. Not. It's not. So I mean, it must be uncomfortable. There is a kind of, there is a slightly misguided notion that this is glamorous. but oh, actually, I had no idea yeah. that it was ever glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort what of, it does to your hair well, and yes. face and everything mm. is, is unimaginable. You know, there's this concept of helmet hair when you get out of flying in an open cockpit. But, yeah, it's, it's, it is physically tough. I mean, there's a lot of tension, physical tension mm. in it. And often when I have been flying for a long time, I'm actually physically stiff from it and trembling, actually. And you realise just the tension because this is hands-on flying. There's no trims or autopilot. This is stick and rudder. You know, it's very difficult to even get a map out. It's very, very physical. And there's just, having said that, you know, it, it's very concentrating and it's, it's just fantastic fun. You know, and it's 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 just wonderful. You know, I get into that aeroplane and it just it just is so delightful to fly. So I think it'll be beautiful, a beautiful flight. Well, besides all of all of this and, and sort of connecting with women's organisations mm. and women who are creating their own firsts across Africa, you're also flying as an ambassador for the Great Campaign of of Britain. Well, that's right, which was really a sort of initiative from Downing Street to promote you know, British activities overseas. And of course, adventure, we're part of the adventure side of that. So, you know, I'm a great British adventurer, which makes me laugh a bit. I wouldn't but of course say it's, so, that yeah. sounds well, pretty true, yes. <laughs> 
So that's actually rather nice, though, well, to we have do. that. Yeah, we do, and we well. have a remarkable aviation history. And of course, mm. Africa was was you know the great continent where a lot of the technology was developed for air-to-air refueling. And Boeing, of course, you know, developed the first pressurized cockpit for some of these long-distance flights. But it was actually out cutting the airways through Africa. So a lot of it was done because of the conditions in Africa. Actually, so we had a hand in what what what, hap- what happened then, possibly. Well, well not quite that far back, but, but it goes uh, back to again just just the outreaches of empire mm, and having to yes. get to South Africa. So that drove it. Industry drives these things. It was the early transport routes. So this 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 recreation has lots of implications. I mean, Mary Heath was there just promoting flying mm. and showing what women could do. That women, you know, could do the same things as, as men. So she was she was very sort of liberated and modern in her approach. So she's, you know, she's a very iconic figure. She's not. She doesn't get the recognition she deserves, I think, for what she achieved. Well, I think you're going to be putting her on the map after this. I'd like to think Put so. Put yourself on the map and her, which is great. Well, I'd just like to make it home. I think that's, <laughs> an, you know, make a success of it, really, and then look at, you know, f- more flights in future. Yes, what is next? I mean, this, this is quite an ambitious project. So, I mean, whatever else comes after this will have to be even bigger and better. Well, of course, with a, pro- a project of this nature, the, the, honestly, the hardest thing is getting the financial support behind it. And in this economic climate, I mean, it's been really uphill. And, and frankly, it's been my, my, my three main sponsors. Boeing came on board as my first sponsor, and that's the icebreaker. So once you can walk in with, with a, a name like, you know, global first in aerospace, I mean, that, that is what gets you indoors. And then I had Artemis Investments. They're my main sponsor. Well, your plan is Spirit of Artemis. It's Spirit of Artemis, so they really got the naming rights, and they have been absolutely tremendous. And what I loved about that is I wanted it to be the spirit of, because I've always loved Mm. the spirit of ecstasy, that image of the crouching, winged lady just about to sort of get airborne. So that was that's always informed my view of this aeroplane. So when Artemis came on board as a sort of female, you know, the female goddess, it just fitted beautifully, actually. So then it became obvious that it was the spirit of Artemis. And, of course, ExecuJet, who have been tremendous. So I'm, I'm there at their facilities at, at Cape Town. We're going to be stopping with them in Lanceria, and they've been magnificently supportive. So great thanks to their crew over the last few days because they've been tremendous. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for your next adventure. And I must just tell you that Tracy arrived in the studio this evening with a fabulous tin aeroplane, a biplane that uh, was found at the airport. <laughs> that one of those craft things. We make the most fabulous crafts here in South Africa. And it looks, well, I don't know if it looks exactly like her plane, but it's a biplane and it's an open cockpit thing. And uh, yes, hope, well, you're not getting in that one. It's very little <laughs> with some beer cap wheels but uh, it's fabulous and it sort of just right suits exactly what she's going to be doing so take that back with you and remember us here in cape town my little mascot thank you very much thank you for joining us on the show and good luck we wish you all the best and uh, we'll keep an eye out i'll give out some details people can follow you on the website and uh, we'll see how you do thank you very much thank you for your time tracy curtis taylor will be leaving cape town on the first of november on the historic flight back to london and if you'd like to follow her you can take a look at the website it's www.capetowntogoodwood Time to travel on SAFM. Lungile Sujini is the owner and CEO of Guesthouse and B&B Marketing in Butterworth in the Eastern Cape. Now, he emailed me to ask whether he could join me on the show to discuss what people could do to attract tourism into the area. Lungile, welcome. Good evening. 
Yes, Karen, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you about your area of Butterworth. And oh. uh, you've got some amazing ideas. And as I said to you in the email, I love <laughs> I love people like you who are proactive and don't just sit there and say, well, yeah. there's nothing much happening around here. You actually want to do something. Yes, yes, I really want to do something. So tell me a little bit about Butterworth. You, you tell me a lot in the email about what isn't there. You say we don't have a game park, we don't have a zoo, we don't have a theatre or a museum. And then you say, well, what could we do? to make this a place that people want to go. So All right. Tell me what's in your mind. Oh, okay. No, what was in my mind was like maybe to create some activities, you know, because like we don't have museums, as I was saying. So how about we call our street performers maybe, or we do just about anything that we can do or create um, like examples of shows that can come that can attract people to come over here. Because I was watching the TV the other day, and I saw the Soweto snake woman on Al Jazeera. And then, like, before, people were not going, were going actually to go see Mandela's house. But now, because of her, people actually go and see snakes there. So I'm not saying that Peloid BMB, the BMB which I'm marketing, we're going to be having snakes or anything. But I'm just talking, like, about uh, those kind of things. Like, what can we do? How can we perform? Just like the other example you had last week on the show, like Amazink, where like uh, I cannot really remember what was happening, but just about to bring something that can get attention so people can be interested in butter with. Well, what they were doing with Amazink was they were taking people from the local communities, they were doing auditions with them, discovering the most remarkable talent and the most incredible voices these people had, and they actually made a show around that. And, I mean, they are drawing in visitors from all over the world are coming to see this, and they have a braai outside and we have all local food and everything else. It's wonderful. And something like that would probably work really well up in Butterworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I don't think it will, it will actually work because, like, you know, when you have to charge people... Like, you have to consider, like, the population also, like, how many people, but you just have to consider, like, things which won't be expensive for the people. But in the long term, is now, like, we are starting out, so we wouldn't actually be going for the Amazink, probably thinking of things that will cost us less, and, but actually it's a good idea, that one. So... Lugina, are you asking people to sort of contact you with ideas? How are you wanting to get this whole thing started now? Oh, well, I, I wanted to to get started. First of all, I wanted to hire a clown. Not hire one exactly, but buy maybe a clown costume, and then we can maybe hand out flyers because, you know, we need to send the robots. People early in the morning, they are grumpy and so on. Mm. But then you want to make them smile, and then you want to advertise maybe... Uh, you see, but then you're not actually doing the traditional advertising or the traditional marketing. And then the other thing we're going to do, we're going to do like videos which uh, include shows here from Butterworth, not just like uh, post, make videos and post them on YouTube. But then what we do, we have our own shows here in Butterworth, maybe record them and then we distribute them to other people so that they can see and at the time enjoy like the talent from people who are in Butterworth and so on. That's what we wanted to do. So do you want people to get hold of you if they're interested in, in sort of joining up with you and coming up with ideas? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because the, the other thing I was thinking, like, you know, New York, like, they've got, like, is that the Statue of Liberty, you know, it was, like, donated, uh, as I hear, like, from France. It was like, a gift, the, yes. Mm. It, it was like that, right? 
Yes. So, <laughs> all right. So what I'm saying is, like, if maybe there's anyone listening, maybe she's in Cape Town, maybe she's in Durban, or she's in Pretoria, and maybe they want to do something, give us something, not, a, not as an donation, but maybe they want to send us uh, a statue of liberty or just about anything, they can do so. I don't mind having people bringing their own ideas. So how would they get hold of you, Lugile, on your cell phone? Is that something you want me to give out now? Or, or how else have you got an email address perhaps they would you want me to give out? Yes, yes. Can I give them the the number for the BMB? Yes, that's fine. Okay, that's 047. Right. 491. Right. Double zero. Right. Double nine. And can I also give my cell number? Yes, you can. And oh. I'll have all these numbers I will put onto the Facebook page, on the Time to Travel Facebook page. Okay. And people can go and check there as well if they've missed it now. All right. That's 078. Mm-hmm. 939-5725. Okay. And if they have any ideas or if they want to get involved to help you with any way of promoting Butterworth, yes. and that would be fantastic. And right. um, you know, it's, it's But it's so nice to see that somebody's trying to get the, the area that they live in motivated, up and running, and come up with some ideas on how to attract more tourists and more people to the area. Yes, yes, because it's not only about the tourists, it's also about the people who are like living around. Let's yes. matter with what can they do to contribute. Yes, exactly, that's about that. So the local people need to get involved as well, and, and if anyone else outside of the area would like to get involved, they can call you and come up with some ideas. And as I said, I love people like you who are proactive and get out there and do something, which is wonderful. Yes, and, and also like, you know, if they've got ideas, that's great. But let's say they're passing through Barawith because maybe other people are going to East London, other people maybe are going to Mtata and so on. They can maybe drive through at the BMB for a free coffee or something like that. Just, you know, so that when you're visiting a place, you know some people and so on. That's great. Lugida, I wish you much success with your project and um, hopefully you'll get lots of people contacting you with some lovely ideas. Thank you very much for contacting me and for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you, Karen. Lugile Sargini is the owner and CEO of Guesthouse and B&B Marketing in Butterworth in the Eastern Cape. And if you'd like to get in touch with him, you can call him on 047-491-0099. That's 047-491-0099 or on his cell number, which is 078-939-5725. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, when it comes to business travel, those corporate clients would, I imagine, have a whole lot of different requirements to when you and I just pop off on holiday. Well, to talk us through what is available and what business travellers expect, I'm joined on the line now by Julie Favria, MD of Travel Manor. Julie, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm sure it's not as simple as when you, well, not you, but when the rest of us who just don't travel for business purposes, we just pop off and want to go and have a holiday. But I'm sure business travel and corporate travel is a whole other story completely. It is completely, completely different. Now, you focus specifically on business travel. Business travel is is very different to to, to, to leisure travel in that the business traveler is really not interested in the how to do it, but he wants to get to his destination. He doesn't even look at his e-ticket. He doesn't even look at his voucher. He, he, he just gets the car into the company and he picks up his car and off he goes. And the leisure client will sit with you for quite some time. Um, you have to give a lot of attention. There's a lot of patience involved. Business traveler, is, it really is very a complete different 
conversation. But, I mean, in, I suppose in the past, especially with business travellers, it was just a case of getting the traveller from point A to point B, but there's so much more involved than just that for you as the person organising all of this. Yes. Typically today, a, a corporate traveller will may need a transfer from his home to the airport. He needs, he needs a, pre- a preference seating. He might have a special meal requirement. When he gets to the other end, he doesn't want to wait at the at the car in the company to pick up, to, to sign a contract. He just wants to pick up the keys and, and, and go because he has a meeting that he has to attend to. And likewise, when he comes back, he just wants to drop the keys off, get on the flight and get home and his transfer is waiting for him. And we have to make sure that everything is in place because if one of those little things are not, do not work out according to plan, you might miss an important meeting. So your role is, is really very much of a caretaker almost. You, you have to almost, baby, almost babysit this client to the, from here to, where, to get him to where he needs to go. That's exactly it. We like to think of ourselves as travel managers. We manage the corporate client's needs. Now, I was rather interested to read on your website, Julie, that your consultants are encouraged to experience the travel themselves so they can talk from a personal point of view when they are trying or book or help the, the, the business traveller from a very much of a personal point of view. They're not just talking because they've read it somewhere. They've actually experienced it themselves. Exactly. You know, as, as consultants, you can't travel everywhere in the world. Unfortunately, we would like to. But you really need to know what it's like to be at Heathrow Airport and, and, and know how long the distances are between terminals, uh, connecting minimum connecting times, how long it takes for your luggage to come through, um, the types of transport that's available into the city, many, many aspects. I was also very interested to read that you also help businesses with their reporting and expense management. How do you go about doing that? Exactly. We've got a, a system called um, um, QuickTrav. It's an accounting package for travel agents, and um, through that there is a reporting system where the, the clients, where the corporate traveller can get regular Updates on their travel spend by by by, um, by a certain period, by a, pass, a certain traveller in within the company. Um, the, the you know how many how many cardinals he's taken. What is the amount of his of his holiday? Uh, sorry, in his holiday, his accommodation, um, and and thereby you know to curb the the expenditure. Gosh, that really is a full service. I mean, you offer pretty much everything they're going to ever need. We offer everything. A travel management company must offer everything. We're also on standby 24-7. Oh, my goodness, really? Yes, we do. <laughs> so, you know? like 3 o'clock in the morning, I can't find my passport or something. Exactly. <laughs> no, we get those. We get those <laughs> really? Gosh, this really, it's quite amazing. But now, there must be certain things that you also deal with. Things, for example, I was looking at one of the one of the issues, potentially, business traveling in Africa. Now, we've had quite a lot of disturbances around the continent in the last few months. What yeah. do you do when it comes to booking your business travelers, your corporate travelers, into areas like that where they possibly have to go for a business meeting and you know that there's been problems in the area? What do you do as the, as, as the, as the manager, as this travel manager? Yes, we can only really advise the client. We we can't we, we can't dictate to him that he cannot travel, um, and 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 uh, you know in Africa, um, uh, uh, most of the time there is there is a link the other, at the other end. You know, a, a business traveller won't just go into Africa and go and 
a corporate traveler won't, won't just go and, mm. and go and explore. He will have a contact there. He will have a business deal there. He will have people meeting him. You know, I know, for instance, in Nigeria, uh, it's very important to be met at the airport by, 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 by the company or your contact. Yeah, so you basically in those situations can just advise and be at the yes, other end of a phone if there is a problem once they're there. Precisely. Gosh, so it is, as I said, it's almost like you're babysitting these people. But, I mean, you need people like yourselves, especially with business travelers, so that they can go over there quite secure in the knowledge that if there is a problem, there's somebody going to be at the other end of a phone line, as you say, 24-7. Oh, for sure. Oh, definitely. Now, we get those calls at, at all hours and for all, all sorts of reasons. Now, I was reading as well, Julie, that you are an independently owned travel management agency and the only franchise within the Harvey World Travel Group to have retained its own identity. Yes, by that we mean that a lot of the Harvey agencies are are named after the, the location. For instance, we should have been maybe a Harvey World Cape Town. Oh, I see. But, okay. Yes, but we our, our name is Travel Manor. We we we, uh, we started off with that name and we retained that name, and we also one of the one of the um, few agencies in the group that is really a hundred percent corporate. Travel management. Oh, so you don't do leisure travel at all? We do. We do the spin-offs from our corporate clients. Oh, right. But not independently, just you and myself and like the next guy on the street want to go somewhere on holiday. That we, You don't cover that. But if it's part of a business trip, then you do cover the leisure side. We do really. You know, if you find me tomorrow and say, I'd like to go to Mauritius with my family, I will definitely give you a quotation. I'll give you the best deal. No, we do that. Oh, so but you but do, our okay. focus, our mm. focus is on a corporate traveler because their needs come first because that is what we advertise ourselves or market ourselves as about. A, as corporate travel as managers corporate, exactly now with your affiliation with harvey world travel and you you also affiliated with some other rather large travel organizations you must have quite a good um way of getting the best price for your clients yes we do we part of the best bitwest group and um the, the, the travel spend is is really phenomenal and um, i don't think you can get better um better deals than what we have with, with the Bitfish Group. So for the real good deal, you, because you are so well connected as, as, as a management company, you can actually get the really good deals for your clients. Yes, that's for sure. What have, you, what have you seen as far as the spenders concerned now with the, with the recession and with everybody cutting back? Do you find that business travelers are not traveling as much as they used to in the past, or they're still traveling a lot? No, we find that they're not, not traveling as, as much as, as much as they, they used to. Our existing clients, we, we, we've seen that that, that they've been um, more more inclined to have a video conference mm. or or postpone the trips or you know uh, or, yeah it, 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 they, we have seen that unfortunately for us but well yes that's the reality. But I was about to ask you how technology has impacted your business because as you say with teleconferencing and with Skype and all these things yes. now people don't have to leave the comfort of the office they just sit there and chat with everybody else you know precisely yes but you know the flights are still full. Mm. Like all that, the flights are still very full. If you take a business uh, uh, flight in the morning between 6 and, and, and 9, the flights are chockers. Is that just local, sort of internal South African flights? or? Well, yeah, the, yeah, the local flights, mm. but, but full of business people, people traveling on business. Well, so, so, obviously so, it yeah, so hopefully this technology isn't going to affect you too badly. Well, some people, some companies actually purchase their, their flights themselves. Mm. On, on the internet, but really there's, there's no backup, there's no support for them. 
when when things go wrong. Yeah, that's always the problem, especially you know, especially corporate travellers. You know, who need they can't sort of be worrying around sitting on the phone phoning ten thousand people if something goes wrong. They need to pick up the phone once and yes. say this is the problem. And you and your consultants will say, fine, don't worry, we'll sort it out. And they can go back to whatever they were doing. They don't have to sit on the phone all day trying to sort out whatever the problem is. That's exactly it. Gosh, okay. So we almost, mm-hmm. we almost feel like we need someone like you when we go on holiday. So you can <laughs> the other end of the phone line and we can just say, I've got a problem with the hotel or something's not working or something. And then you can just make this magic thing happen and we're all happy. <laughs> it would be really yes. nice. <laughs> yes, we try. We try. Well, we definitely have to bear that in mind next time we travel. And for all those traveling for business, I suggest you get yourself a travel manager. It sounds like definitely the way to go off and do business. Don't try and do it yourself. It sounds like it could just be a slight nightmare for you. But if you have someone like Julie at the other end of a phone line or one of her consultants, um, your business trip is likely to go off without a hitch and be quite pleasant and stress-free, other than obviously what happens at the business meetings. But other than that, it sounds like it could be quite a stress-free situation. Julie, thank you very much for joining us on the show this evening and for giving us a little look into the world of business travellers. Not that all of us do that, but a lot of us, I think, do. Um, But thank you for giving us that insight and for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Julie. Good night to you. Okay. Good evening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Julie Ferrier is the founder and managing director of Travel Manor. If you'd like more information on what they offer, you can take a look at the website. It's www.travelmanor.co.za. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, Kerry Harvey's back with us again this evening. She's a freelance travel writer, and we catch up with her every now and again when she stops off back in South Africa on her trips all over the place, all around the world. Well, she's just recently back from Ireland, and she's you know, very generously decided to spend some time with us to tell us about her trip. Kerry, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Hugh This is This is one of those places on my bucket list. Always, this is definitely have to go there before I die. So, have you been to Ireland before? I haven't, and it was on my bucket list Ooh, too, so okay. I finally have, have done it. It's one of those places where it's a whole mix of different things. I mean, you can do the heritage thing, the natural attractions, there's the cities. I mean, there's so much to do there. There is, and, you know, you there's quite a, a false impression created about Ireland, actually, that you can you can go for a week and you've been there, done that. Oh, no. Not so, Mm-mm. not so. You really do need a substantial amount of time if you want to see it all because it's such a small island, but so full of things to see and do. How long were you there? I was there for two weeks, and I didn't even scrape the surface. So where did you start? Starting in Dublin. Um, which is, you know, I think it's an obvious place for most people. And But there's so much to see and do in Dublin. You can easily spend a week there and never be bored as well. Um, and then I, I went a little north to see some of the uh, sort of heritage sites and then took a car and drove across to the west coast and all the way down and back to Dublin. So what did you start off by seeing in Dublin? Is it one of those places with lots of heritage? Is it buildings? What is it that you saw there? It's a whole mix as well. And, you know, Dublin has... Dublin's really a city for walking, and in fact, the whole of Ireland is good for walking, and the Irish love to walk, which is a great way to see things, because you're kind of much closer and more personal. So Dublin has a has a hop-on, hop-off bus, which also is, 
is great for people wanting to get around faster. But um, I did a lot of walking. So, yes, it was a mix of, you know, I went to Trinity College to see the Book of Kells. And, oh, wow. Um, went to the Guinness Warehouse, which was absolutely fascinating, The you know, how Guinness started and what it has transformed into. Um, and very interesting to find out that Guinness started completely by mistake. And what it, you know, what it is today, and it's a, it's a huge organization that also has a, a massive philanthropic arm. And Guinness is not just to drink, but there's Guinness bread and Guinness chocolate and Guinness potato chips and all sorts of other things. So you don't need to be a drinker to go there. Well, so that, that actually is quite useful to know because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I don't really drink Guinness, so I'm not yes. going to pop in there. But it's, it's quite a, a fascinating building in itself, though. It is, and it's the real Guinness warehouse that has actually been transformed um, into into a public space where people can learn about Guinness, taste Guinness, see the process of how it's made. And they've filled this multi-story building with really interesting exhibits and interactive shows, and it's fascinating. You can easily spend a whole day there. Gosh, okay, this, this two weeks is starting to sound really too short now. While you were in Dublin, you you mentioned to me as well that you went to see Trim Castle. Is that close to Dublin? Where is that? Because that's where Braveheart was filmed. Exactly. Um, Trim Castles, it's re- yes, it is very close to Dublin, very much a day trip, sort of northeast of, northwest rather of Dublin. And um, it's where Braveheart was filmed. And we saw it in, in very moody, sort of misty conditions. So you kind of, you did, in a way, feel like you were on the movie set. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful and a, and a massive, towering castle where you, you just expected Mel Gibson to step out any second. Is the castle open for public? For it public? Is, it, it is. is. Yes, it is. Do they make a big thing of the fact that Braveheart was filmed there? Not actually. They, you know, they make more of a thing of the history of Trim and... You know, it's, it's significance more than the movie. But all over Ireland, you know, movies were shot. The movies you didn't even realize were shot in Ireland were all over the show. But it's a, it's a great spot to visit and a, and a lovely day trip. I think it's that scenery and that sort of feel about, you know, what's there. It, it makes it perfect for movies. So that's probably why they keep shooting them there. Yes, yes. And, you know, the real sense of antiquity wherever mm. you are. You went off to Carlingford. I remember when we spoke about your trip to Namibia a while ago, you also mentioned you went to Oyster Farm. It seems to be a habit with you. There's more Oyster Farms here in Ireland. Carlingford, is it? That's correct, yes. Carlingford is a little way up the coast from Dublin, and it's also it's close to or on the Carlingford Loch, and there's, there's massive oyster farming going on there also for export. So it was very interesting to see you know, how things are done, and this is actually done very close to shore as well. And because they have quite inclement weather up there, they need to do their planning really well. So they get out to check the oysters, you know, just a couple of days a month that the tide is right and the weather is right. So a very interesting little trip as well. And then you hired a car and popped off to, was it Connemara or to Galway? Yes, from Dublin sort of right across west to Galway, and uh, Galway is a, a wonderful city to use as a base to do day trips, you know, into the surrounding countryside because there's quite a lot to see and do that's all very accessible there and back within a day. So, yes, up to the, the Connemara, which is very wild, uh, mountainous countryside and renowned for its marble, the Connemara marble, which is green. 
and I believe also dated to 900 million years old. Is it a touch old? Okay. It's a touch old. And, uh, you know, most things in Ireland um, have... Things are old in the most beautiful sense of the word. They're classically old. And the Connemara, again, they're wild and windswept and, you know, misty and, and drizzling and lots of water and lakes and people fly fishing, just like Ireland is supposed to look. Mm. And a, a wonderful day trip as well. This is the home of bog land as well. It lots is. of the bogs. I think then they get the peat from that for the fires and stuff, don't they? Exactly. Mm. And we actually saw peat being cut, which is, which is also quite interesting because, you know, you can't step on bog land because you will just sink into it and you can't easily be retrieved. So, you know, they put on platforms that they work on um, to be able to cut it and then it's dried in little pyramid heaps and then it's used for heating and other purposes as well. But heating is a big one. Well, that was quite interesting. I was always wondered how they got it out of there. Yes. <laughs> okay. Without, you know, drowning without themselves. Yes, you know, without, oh, he's gone, but here's the peach, you know, it's just <laughs> really weird. Um, another one of your day trips, you went to the Aran Islands. I think we all know about the Aran sweaters. This is where they come from. This is exactly where they come from. And something interesting that I learned is that there are so many different designs for these sweaters. You know, they're all the highly intricate cabled jerseys that have all sorts of complicated stitches and every every family in fact has a pattern an Aaron pattern that is their own and the fishermen wear these jerseys when they go out fishing and as was explained to me a lot of the fishermen in fact can't swim but even if you can swim and you land in the icy atlantic for too long your chances are not good of surviving and in fact when the bodies washed up they identified the family by the Aaron sweater that's awful. That's so sad. It's it's awful, but the sweaters are the sweaters are absolutely exquisitely beautiful, and all from you know homespun wool, and knitted to such precision that you you actually can't imagine such art in knitting. Well, it's a very good thing I'm not Irish then, because they, my family would never have had a jersey, because <laughs> I cannot knit, and especially not this intricate cable stuff. Because yes. I mean, it is their sweaters are amazing. It's absolute art. Did you buy some? Buy one. I bought gloves. I bought oh. very intricately cabled gloves, which I will definitely be wearing next winter. Wow, I didn't know they made the, the cabled gloves as well. That's rather nice. Yes. And also and something scarves, easy, easy all sorts to, of things. And easy to pack it in your suitcase because those sweaters are quite bulky. They are. They are. And then after you went there, the Aran Islands, what was your next thing? I think you went up the West Coast. Yes, I actually drove south down the West Coast, back to Galway as my base, and then uh, drove south through well, to see the, the cliffs of Moa and the Burren, which is a, a very rocky, mountainous area as well that's very, very beautiful onto the coast and very popular for day trips and people wanting to walk and hike and fish and even to camp. And um, the cliffs of Moa, of course, are one of the, the iconic sites of Ireland where sheer cliffs drop straight into the Atlantic. Very unusual. There's absolutely no beach whatsoever. The sea is crashing against the cliff faces and very dramatically beautiful. You talk here about driving yourself. So you did most of this was a self-drive holiday, effectively. You weren't on a tour or you didn't have a tour guide? No, not at all. I was all on my own in my Audi A1 and with a GPS, which was extremely helpful. And it's very, very easy driving in Ireland because they also drive on the left. So 
there's nothing complicated about it. You know, the only difference would be that you're going to places you haven't been before and you find your way around, which if you have a GPS, there's no issue whatsoever. So it was very relaxed driving, and it's just a wonderful way to see Ireland because you're driving through the countryside as well and stopping wherever you want to and meeting the people. And the Irish people are more than enough reason to go to Ireland. Right, so you're driving along and you ended up at some place called, Kil- is it Kilkee? Yes, Kilkee, also on the west coast. And that was in order to see Loop Head Lighthouse because just from Kilkee there's the Loop Head. Um, and I'm, I'm quite a Lighthouse fan, so I wanted to see as many as I could. And this was absolutely beautiful and climbed the Lighthouse and it was a beautiful, sunny, clear day. So I could see all the way up and down the coast. And that's at the mouth of the Shannon, which, you know, one of the great rivers in Ireland and one of the great names as well that we know. So you went across that, though, on a car ferry and down to County Kerry? That's right, yeah. So across the Shannon and down into Kerry for obvious reasons. I had to put foot in Kerry Mm. before leaving Ireland. And all the way, in fact, down to the Slayhead Peninsula and a little fishing village called Dingle. And Dingle has an interesting resident called Fungi, who's a dolphin. And he's a bottlenose dolphin and has... I believe, been in the Dingle Bay for close to 30 years already. And I thought that was a little old for a bottlenose, and, you know, maybe he's been replaced by another, but he hasn't because he has a a very distinct nick on his dorsal fin, and it is him. Um, I have since found out that bottlenose dolphins can live in the wild to about 60 years old. So, But anyway, he shows up rain or shine, and boats go out, and you can see fungi he he shows up he you know he swims next to the boat he does flick flacks every single day and he's resident in the harbor which is very unusual other bottlenoses come in to visit him and the day i went out there were four others but the next day they leave again and he stays so he's a great attraction in the area as well and you know something quite special to do you you were telling me though that if, if you go out on the boat and you don't see him they offer to refund your money but they've never had to do that before well, they they have done it before. I think they said two or three times. Over 30 years. <laughs> Pretty much. And they're running many, many tours. They sometimes do, can do up to 20 trips a day wow. you know, in, in higher season. So he is 99.9 recurring percent reliable <laughs> that he'll show up. You know, it may, be, it may be cool on the outside or raining or whatever, but it, that's makes no difference to fungi he shows up and he has everybody absolutely enthralled one of the theories in fact which i thought was quite interesting was that he had escaped from an oceanarium somewhere but when i spoke to the people who owned the the boat company they said long ago they had tried to feed him and he'd refused so they never tried again and they took that as a sign that he was in fact not from Mm. an oceanarium because he didn't accept food he hunts his own food Interesting. Mm. But Dingle itself is quite an interesting place. It's quite a rich archaeological area, so lots of interesting people there. It does seem to attract amazingly interesting people. And, you know, there's there's the sort of loop drive that you you can do around Dingle Peninsula on incredibly narrow roads which I did, and made fascinating people in between archaeological sites of ancient ancient little um, beehive houses made of stone and coastal forts, you know, with very low um, dry stone packed forts. 
But the people I met were, you know, they ranged from an American archaeologist who actually now lives there to an Italian sculptor and the B&B where I stayed were British people and, you know, I met a Dutch museum curator. And this is all within just a few kilometers on this on this Dingle Peninsula. And Australian people who were running boats. So there's an absolute league of nations there that, you know, Dingle seems to attract all these different people because there there is so much going on there basically in in such a small area now was it here where you were meeting all these interesting people that you met out well in my view one of the most interesting of all the leprechaun whisperer the leprechaun whisperer in fact lives quite far from dingle on the opposite coastline in the north he's around carlingford area where it's believed oh, where the oyster farms are that's where the oyster farms yes and he believes that there are still around roughly 250 leprechauns left in the forest behind carlingford in the mount you know in the mountainous forest and he's he's a retired gentleman and he has dedicated his retirement to educating people about leprechauns so he touts himself as a leprechaun whisperer, and he just has really fascinating stories to tell because he, you know, when he started his talk, he said, call them spirits, call them whatever you want to. He calls them leprechauns. And then he proceeds to explain what they look like, that they're tiny people, and they wear, you know, little little woolish pointed shoes with buckles on, and they wear these tiny little cone hats, and they dress in green, and he, in fact, every year also hosts a leprechaun hunt in the forest for people to see if they can spot leprechauns. And he has a whole interactive guided trip underground to a kind of leprechaun cavern that he's built. Has he um, ever seen one? Well, of course. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, he, he says that he definitely does see them, but not everybody can. Oh, okay. So, you know, the the experience was really fascinating and I mean if you if you want to classify it as myth and folklore or whatever, it it remains an absolutely fascinating way to spend an afternoon and it's right he does this all sitting in a circle right on the water's edge in Carlingford and it it was just a lovely experience. You know, you you can just go back to childhood for a, for a few hours if nothing else. It sounds to me like you're going to have to go back, Kerry. It doesn't seem like you had enough time to see everything. No, it was very much just skimming the surface in two weeks. So I think a, a month would be better. It sounds like it. <laughs> As I said, it's definitely on my bucket list. It seems like it was on yours. sort of partially been resolved. You need to possibly go back and finish it now. I think so, yes. Mm. That's on the card. So where are you off to next? Next to Kenya in a few weeks' time to the Masai Mara and a few other places, and then to Mozambique after that. Enjoy it. Thank you so much. Have fun, and I hope you'll come and tell us about it when you get back. I definitely will, Karen. Thank you. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey. She's a freelance travel writer who's recently spent some time in Ireland. And obviously, as we always do with Kerry, loads of contact details. They'll all be on the Facebook page travel on SAFM so have a look there lots of contact websites and all those sorts of things but just to get you started in the meantime you can take a look at www.ireland.com 
Coming up this weekend on SAFM Sports Special, on Saturday we feature the Soweto Derby live from the Calabash from 3.30. We'll have all the Curry Cup final action when Western Province hosts the Sharks from 5.30. And we'll also bring you up to speed on the second test between Pakistan and the Proteas from Dubai. Formula One action from India, as well as the golf from Shanghai. All this and more, Saturday from 3 and Sunday from 4 with myself, Brad Brown, on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. To grow, we need transformation. But the question is, what should our strategy be? NetBank and Partners bring you the Transformation Dialogue, where a panel of experts will discuss, debate, and dissect a range of topics surrounding this. This month, we investigate broad-based economic empowerment, what it's sought to achieve over the past 10 years, and where it's going. Tune into SAFM at 9 a.m. on the 30th of October, and let's make transformation happen. NetBank is an authorized financial services and credit provider. Terms and conditions apply. Make things happen. NetBank. Are you up to date with the world of property? For all things property, what are your rights as a property owner and or purchaser? Are you a tenant or the landlord and you need advice? What is the value of your investment in commercial property in South Africa? What matters are of importance in discussing land ownership? Trust us to simplify and help you understand the detail in all things property. Join me, Dineo Mulomo, every week on Tuesday morning on Morning Talk at 10.30. Time to travel on SAFM. And just picking up from that promo for Tuesday mornings on property, just a reminder that in the law report next week, Marlon Chevalier, attorney Marlon Chevalier, will be joining us. And it's our monthly chat about rental property law. So as she also said, anything to do with landlords, tenants, problems, but getting people in, getting people out, all that sort of thing next week, Monday on the law report with attorney Marlon Chevalier. And then just a reminder, I, I don't know if you remember from quite a while back, I was running a feature called My Town, where I was inviting you, the listeners, to get in touch with me to tell me a little bit about where it is you live, about the fabulous things that are there, things that if people came to your part of the world, you wouldn't want them to leave without seeing or experiencing. And I've had some amazing responses, and we've contacted a lot of those listeners and had them on the show talking about these wonderful places around the parts of, of South Africa where they live. But I'd like you to contact me as well. So what is it about where you live? What is it that you think is one of those things people should not miss seeing when they come up there, or even should make a special trip to come and have a look at it or experience it? Drop me an email to travel on safm.co.za and I'll be in touch with you and hopefully we can feature that part of the world on the show. It's really nice to get people to explore because I really am very fond of telling people that you need to become a tourist in your own town and then in your own province and in your own country. As I always say, it's fabulous to travel overseas, but really, really wonderful to explore South Africa. And there are some amazing things to do and to see in this country. So please drop me a mail, travel at safm.co.za. You can also post something on the Facebook page, travel on SAFM. But if you do it on the Facebook page, please always remember to include your email address so that I can be in direct contact with you, just in case you don't check your Facebook, the posts that I make on there often enough, and then you won't, you won't uh, get hold of me. So rather just pop your email address on there and we can be in touch. Well, that's it for Time to Travel this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report, as I said, and we'll be chatting about rental property law with attorney Marlon Chevalier. So tune in for that on Monday. It's the Law Report, Monday the 28th of October, and uh, all things property on Monday evening with Marlon Chevalier.